following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. Now, we are this morning uh, in the final week of the series that we've been working through on and off. It's just been a four-week series, feels a bit longer, but uh, it's called I Wish That Wasn't in the Bible. Next week, we're getting back into our Exodus series, so you can be gearing up for that. We're going to be hitting Exodus uh, 17 next week. That's our major teaching series for the year, so it'd be good to get back into Exodus, do a bit of reading, read Exodus 17 in preparation for next week. But this morning is the final message in this series uh, called I Wish That Wasn't in the Bible. And what we've been doing in that series is taking passages in the Bible that are among the most uh, disturbing, the weird, the wonderful, the wacky, the bizarre, the upsetting, the offensive, whatever kind of negative adjective you want to use, and, and trying to do the, the best that I can to have an honest look at these passages, put them in the context of the biblical story as a whole, the story of Scripture, and um, see what sense they make. So we've looked at two passages in the Old Testament. Uh, then last week... We looked at a passage in the Gospels where Jesus talks about carrying our cross. We looked at the nature of what it is to be a disciple. Uh, this morning, we've kind of I've, I've saved the big fish till last, saved the biggie till last. Um, we're tackling maybe one of the hardest passages in the Bible, tackling certainly one of the most controversial topics of our time, uh, one of the most controversial and polarizing topics within the church, the topic of homosexuality. Aren't you glad you came today? This is what we're heading into today. And I think for many Christians, uh, my estimate would be that this is perhaps the topic that we most wish wasn't in the Bible, that we most wish just wasn't covered, uh, that it would be easier for everybody if the Bible just didn't deal with it, then we could stick our heads in the sand and just pretend like it's not an issue, or at least that it doesn't affect our faith, that it's not an issue of relevance to our faith. But of course, the Bible does talk about it. Uh, inescapably, the Bible does talk about the subject of homosexuality in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a number of verses, a number of texts where homosexuality is mentioned. So at a certain point, uh, it's a healthy thing for us as Christians to try as simply and straightforwardly as we can to look at this issue from a biblical perspective. And I figure now is as good a time as any. We're in this series on stuff I wish wasn't in the Bible. This fits pretty squarely in that category. Uh, plus, it's pretty topical. You've got the U.S. decision recently, the Supreme Court decision to legalize uh, gay marriage in the States. And, uh, of course, that generated a range of responses, the full spectrum of responses, right through from people that celebrated that as a victory for civil rights through to people that felt like that was a breakdown of, of civil society, a breakdown of moral society. And interestingly, with this topic, that full spectrum of responses is also represented in the church. That's what makes the issue so polarizing, that around the issue of marriage equality, for example, you, you have Christians that celebrate that as an expression of God's equal love for all people, and you've got other Christians that feel like it's a betrayal of Christian values and principles and, and a betrayal of Scripture. And then I think you've got a whole lot of Christians in between, if, if I'm reading it rightly. I think a whole lot of Christians in between that don't really know what to think about this issue, uh, don't really know quite what the Bible says, don't know what to make of it, don't really know how to respond to it, and so just don't think about it at all. So my goal this morning is really very modest, very simple goal, and it is to walk through with you one passage, just one passage in the Bible. If we had a whole lot of time, if we, if we were doing a whole series on it, uh, we could look at every 
passage where homosexuality is mentioned. We don't have that kind of time, and I'm not going to do a whole series on it. Uh, so we're going to look at just one passage. But it is the passage in Romans chapter 1 where homosexuality is treated at, at greatest length. Still just two verses out of the whole Bible. Most of the time when it's mentioned, it's just a reference here and a reference there. But in Romans 1, there's two verses where it has its most detailed discussion. So that's the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, I'm approaching this as simply as a, as a Bible teacher, as a pastor and a Bible teacher. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a behavioral scientist. I'm not a political scientist. So there's a lot of dimensions of this issue that we could explore. And I encourage you to, to do that, to keep reading and to read the other biblical texts as well on this. But my goal is simply to walk through a passage of Scripture and do my best uh, to explain it, to provide a biblical interpretation of this passage and this issue in the context of the biblical story. Sound okay? All right. You're pretty quiet. So let's, let's, let's turn to Romans 1. And while you're turning there, I want to make a couple of prelim preliminary comments to set the scene for all this. The first is, I really believe, and this may just be my personal view, but I really believe that as Christians, our first and last word on the topic of homosexuality should be a word of grace. I really believe that. Uh, that if you are gay, if you are lesbian, if you're transgender, if you're bisexual, if you're struggling with your sexuality, what you need to hear and what I hope you hear more than anything else this morning is that you are deeply and dearly loved by God. And I want to say that up front. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, says the gay community has heard the message of judgment from the church plenty of times. What they have not heard enough is the message of grace. What they have not, and, that, and that's an indictment on the church. That's the indictment on non-gay Christians, that we have not loudly and clearly enough spoken the message of grace to the gay community. So we want that to be the heart of our church. I want that to be the heart of our church, that we'd be a community of grace, that we would be a community where regardless of who you are, regardless of your sexual orientation, regardless of whether you are gay, straight, anywhere in between, struggling, wrestling, confused, don't know, wherever you are on the whole complex continuum of sexuality, that you would feel that this is a safe place to wrestle with these issues, to explore, to look at the Bible honestly, to doubt and to seek and to question and to explore the subject without fear of judgment and without fear of condemnation, without fear of being treated or spoken of unkindly by anyone else. We're always going to be imperfect as a community in how we walk that out, but that would be my prayer for us as a church. That's certainly how I want to approach the issue. So I hope that you can hear this. I hope that that's the spirit of this message, uh, the spirit of grace. That's certainly the heart of the gospel that we believe. Okay, second preliminary comment is this, and this really is, is now taking us towards the issue and towards the text, and it's a question. It's a question I want to ask you as we start this out because it is a framing question for how we understand this and any issue. And the question is this, what is your primary authority in approaching the topic of homosexuality. I want you just to think about that. What is your primary authority or the primary lens that you use? How do you make decisions about what is morally uh, or ethically acceptable or appropriate? What, what's the lens you use? What is your primary authority? Is it culture? Is it the shifting norms of Western culture? Is it your religious heritage or tradition, whatever that might be? Uh, is it the experiences and stories of people in your family or your friends? All of those things shape us, right? All of those things inevitably influence us and feed into our lives, and that's good, that's healthy. But I want to suggest that if you're a Christian, and I am speaking specifically here to Christians, if you're a Christian, 
that your primary authority in approaching this issue should be scripture. Now, I know that there is debate, a lot of discussion and disagreement about how scripture should be interpreted and what individual passages mean, but at a foundational level, if you're a Christian, a central conviction in our faith is that scripture is the word of God, that we have brought our lives as followers of Jesus, we've brought our lives within the sphere of biblical authority, and we believe that in some sense, when the Bible speaks, God speaks, in some sense. And therefore, we should place greater weighting on Scripture than other sources of theological reflection, even when Scripture may contradict the norms of our culture or our experiences or even our own religious heritage. So I want to be upfront about the fact that's where I'm coming from. That's really why I say that. I want to recognize that if you're not a Christian, that may not be where you're coming from at all. I wouldn't expect you to hold to or respect biblical authority if you're not a Christian. Uh, but I, I want to be upfront about the fact that I'm proceeding on the assumption of biblical authority. That's the premise. And so if you don't share that premise, we will end in very different places. Uh, and that's not necessarily because of the specific issues, it's because we're starting in a different place. We're, we're starting from a different assumption. We're starting from a different premise. So I just want to be upfront with that because I think that the issue of homosexuality is as much an issue about the authority of Scripture and how we see Scripture and whether we're willing to go to Scripture as our primary authority or simply see it as one voice among many. So I'm proceeding on the assumption of biblical authority and I just want to be transparent with that as we dive into the text. Okay, enough preliminaries, let's get to work. Romans chapter 1. Now, the, the, the verses we're going to focus on are verse 26 and 27, but what I want to do is back right up and read this from verse 18 so that we catch the flow of the overall argument. This is written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the church in Rome. Verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools." and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who was forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. <clears throat> so Paul talks about homosexuality in two verses here, but that's not his main point. It's important to understand Paul's main point here is not homosexuality at all. His argument's much bigger. It's much broader than that. Uh, what he's talking about and focusing on here is the breakdown in the relationship between humanity and God, fundamentally, going all the way back to creation, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and then perpetuated ever since that, this breakdown in humanity's relationship with God, that God created us to serve Him, created us to worship Him, created us to center our lives around Him, but humanity 
individually, collectively, has turned away from God. As, as Paul puts it, we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images like human beings, animals. In other words, we've turned away from God toward idols. We've turned from God to our own selfishness. We've, we've rebelled against God. Everyone has done this. And this is the nature of the human condition. And what Paul's doing in this passage then is he's showing that this has effects. This has flow-on effects into uh, humanity and into human relationships. To use another metaphor, it's kind of like Paul is saying, when, when the creator-creature relationship breaks down, when the relationship between God and humanity breaks down, it's like a massive crack in your, wind, in your windscreen. It's like a rock going through your windscreen. And if you don't get that fixed, next time you go over a Jadabar, what happens? It spreads. And then it spreads again, and it keeps spreading until your entire windscreen eventually is defective. So Paul is saying that when we are alienated from God, when humanity became alienated from God, that's like a crack in your windscreen, and this has now spread out to affect every dimension of human life and human identity. It's affected our relationship within our own selves. Uh, Paul talks about our thinking becoming futile, our foolish hearts being darkened. This affects our, our reasoning, our minds. And then it continues to spread out to affect other human relationships. The breakdown in our relationship with God affects our relationships with one another, the patterns of human relating. That's why in the next few verses that we didn't get to, verse 28 to 31, Paul gives a whole list of behaviors that human beings use to harm each other and hurt each other, malicious behaviors. And he's saying this, these are the effects, these are ultimately the, the follow-on effects of this creator-creature relationship breaking down. These are the furthest effects of the windscreen crack spreading out and out and out. And it all stems back to humanity and God, that relationship being severed. So it's in that context that he discusses homosexuality. He doesn't discuss homosexuality because it's in some special category that he wants to make a big deal of. He doesn't discuss it because it's some elevated class of something or it's worse than other things. He simply uses the example of homosexuality as one example, and he could have used many, many examples, could have used countless examples, but one example of the flow-on effect of the breakdown in the relationship between humanity and God. And he is simply saying these are, this is the kind of thing that happens. These are the kinds of things that you can expect to see in human relationships as a flow-on effect of humanity and God being alienated from one another, right back in the beginning. So that is the broader argument within which this takes place, and that's going to become important as we go and interpret these verses. So let's look at some of the details here, picking it up in verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Now, that language, God gave them over, Paul is simply saying that God allowed that crack in the windshield to keep spreading. In other words, God didn't, didn't just step in and completely stop that from happening, didn't completely mitigate the effects of human sin, but he has allowed the repercussions, the relational repercussions of the breakdown in relationship between humanity and God to spread out, to ripple out. He's not intervened in that. He's allowed that to happen. He's allowed things to take their course. And then he says, Paul says, even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones in the same way the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. The real key to interpreting these verses is the word natural and unnatural, just opposites of the same word. 
That's really what the argument hinges on. That's really where the, where the debate is. Uh, in Greek, the word is physis. It's what translated natural in our Bibles. Uh, the word just means, the word physis, that's where we get the word physical from. Uh, it just means the given state of something by virtue of its uh, physical makeup or its birth order or its created order or its intrinsic condition, the way that things are, the natural way things are in a particular context. What I want to do to help us understand this word natural and Paul's argument is I want to uh, talk you through three arguments for the way that that word should be understood in these verses. Three different arguments that are put forward by people who claim that these verses are not speaking against homosexual practice. So in other words, people that argue against the traditional reading of this passage. I want to show you how they understand the word natural and unnatural, and therefore the conclusions that that draws about what Paul is meaning and intending to say here. The first way in which the word natural, physis, can be taken, some people argue this, is that when Paul talks about natural relations or unnatural relations, he's really talking about what is natural to me. What's natural to you? Our natural orientation, our natural sexual orientation. So if you are gay, your natural orientation would be gay. If you're straight, your natural orientation is straight. And therefore, to change from natural to unnatural relations would be to change from whatever orientation you have or begin with towards the opposite of that to change from a natural gay orientation to being straight or a natural straight orientation to being gay. And therefore the argument is that Paul, really his issue is not with homosexual practice per se, it's with a change in orientation from whatever is natural to you to whatever is unnatural to you. Make sense? Now the problem that comes with that argument is that it's not the way Paul actually uses these words. If you look carefully at the text, Paul only uses the word natural in a certain way, and he only uses the word unnatural in a certain way. He only uses the word natural to refer to or imply heterosexual relationships. And he only uses the word unnatural to refer to or imply homosexual relationships. So he doesn't talk about people uh, changing their natural gay orientation for unnatural heterosexual orientation. He uses the words in very specific and particular ways. So that argument that natural is just what's natural to me doesn't square very well with the way that Paul uses his own words in these verses. Second way in which this word is sometimes taken is to say that when Paul's talking about natural and unnatural relations, he's really talking about what is natural or unnatural in his context, in his culture. So in other words, he's just saying homosexuality is not natural in my culture, but if Paul was writing in a different day and time like ours, he might say that it was natural because it's much more socially accepted today. A couple of comments on that argument. One is it doesn't square particularly well with the social context of Paul's own day. Uh, the world that Paul lived in, the first century world, the Greek-Roman Empire, was on the whole far more sexually permissive than our culture today. Far more sexually free than our culture today, especially because of the influence of the ancient Greek culture. You'll know this if you've studied classics and ancient history. The influence of the Greek culture was very, very sexually permissive. Uh, many Greek writers endorsed homosexuality. Uh, it was implicitly endorsed in Greek mythology because the gods are, are engaged in homosexual practice. All this fed into the world of Paul's day. The Roman ruling class, it was very, very natural to engage in homosexual practice, all the way up the ladder to, to the emperor. 
When Paul's writing this letter to the church in Rome, Emperor Nero is in charge. He's ruling the empire, and he's got himself married to a young boy. So this is the kind of world that Paul's inhabiting here. Not every culture held those views. Not every culture was open. The Jewish culture was far more conservative. But on the whole, this was a very sexually permissive culture because of the influence of ancient Greece. So it wouldn't make a lot of sense for Paul to talk about homosexuality as being unnatural in his culture because most people wouldn't consider it that way at all. More importantly, though, this argument that Paul's just being culturally specific here, it doesn't square very well with the flow of his argument. If you come back to what we talked about, where his argument is coming out of the breakdown in the relationship between God and humanity. He's not talking about something that's culturally specific. He's talking about this, the universal effects of our alienation from God flowing on to human relationships with one another. It uh, wouldn't make a lot of sense for him to use an example that was just applied to one particular time and place. Paul's talking about the kinds of things that have affected humanity in general because of the breakdown in our relationship with God. The third way in which the word natural is taken, and this is really the, the most popular, the dominant argument against the traditional view of this passage, is that when Paul talks about natural and unnatural, he's really talking about relationships that involve some kind of of sexual exploitation when Paul talks about unnatural relationships and there's no argument that sexual exploitation was a huge issue in the first century it was the most common form of homosexuality when it was practiced was it involving some form of sexual exploitation usually between adults and children which everyone today would consider completely perverted uh, but this was the currency of Paul's world and so people argue that really that's what Paul's going after in this passage, is relationships that were manipulative, that involved some form of dominance, that involved sexual exploitation, whether it's prostitution or sex slavery or adult-child relationships. And he's not really talking about mutual, consensual, homosexual relationships at all. Now, without for a minute suggesting that sexual exploitation was acceptable because it absolutely was not and is not, it is absolutely abhorrent, again, Paul's language in this passage suggests that that's not primarily what he's talking about. It may be a subset of what he's talking about, but it's not primarily what he's talking about. When he says, just have a look at verse 27. When Paul says, men committed shameful acts with other men, he could easily have used the Greek word for boys. Could easily have said, men committed shameful acts with boys. Other writers use that phrase or that word when they were describing those kinds of relationships, but he doesn't. He says men committed shameful acts with other men. He also says further up, men were inflamed with lust for one another. That sounds mutual. That sounds consensual. Back in verse 26, he talks about relationships between females. In the ancient world, there was very little evidence of female-to-female -female exploitation. That didn't really happen. It was almost always male-male. So if Paul's just talking about sexual exploitation, it would be bizarre for him to mention this example of females uh, relating to females in this way because that's not that just didn't really happen. So it may be that sexually exploitative relationships are part of or a subset of what Paul is talking about here, but I don't think it is limited to that. I don't think it can be because of the language that Paul uses. Most likely, most logically, on the basis of this passage, on the basis of Paul's language, on the basis of Paul's culture, uh, he is describing here homosexual relationships that are between adults, that are consensual, that are mutual, and in some sense, Paul is saying that those relationships are unnatural. They're 
hard as that is to hear in our cultural context, much as that does not square at all with the, the norms of 21st century Western culture, that, I think, unavoidably is what Paul is saying in these verses. Now, you might disagree with him. You might write that off and say that is absolutely offensive to me. You might reject the Bible. You might reject Christianity on that basis. That is absolutely your right to do that. But what we should not do is try to push Paul into saying something he's just not saying. They try and take his words in a direction that he's just not taking them. Let's at least let Paul say what he says, and then you can decide how you're going to apply that or whether you're going to apply that into your own context. I think the, the deeper question here, though, is why does Paul say that homosexual relationships are unnatural? Where's he getting that from? It's not because they are inherently exploitative, because they're not. It's not because they were culturally abnormal, because they weren't, and they are not today. There's a deeper reason here, and it's because Paul is grounding his entire argument in the creation story. Paul is, is anchoring what he's saying back in the book of Genesis, back in chapters 1 and 2, in God's creation of humanity. There's hints that all the way through this passage that he does that, but one of the clearest hints is right here in verse 26, 27. You don't pick it up in the English, but when Paul talks about men and women in this passage, he's not using the Greek word, the common Greek word for men and woman or man and woman he's using the more generic terms male and female and the reason he's doing that is because when Paul opened his Bible and read his Old Testament those were the words that were used to translate Genesis 1:27. God created humanity in his image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them those are the words uh, the equivalent Greek words that are used there and Paul picks up those words and uses them in Romans 1. He's anchoring what he's saying all the way back in the image of God. See, to be made in the image of God does not just mean that we can think rational thoughts. It doesn't just mean that we are superior to the animals. To be made in the image of God as human beings, and every one of us is, it means the totality of our being. It means who we are in relationship with God, created to relate to Him, created to relate to ourselves in a healthy way created to relate to other people. And the image of God includes our sexuality. You may not have considered that before, but the image of God, being made in the image of God, includes our sexual identity. It includes our gender identity. That's why those two phrases go together. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. My maleness is part of my being made in the image of God. Your masculinity, your femininity is part of being made in the image of God. It's grounded there. Our sexual identity is not intended to be something that shifts and changes, that can go here and go there, either through cultural forces or through personal choices. It is grounded all the way back in creation. It's grounded all the way back in the image of God. And you see this in the progression of the creation story itself. As God's creating the world, he's, he's creating these pairs of things that go together. These pairs of things that are different but similar and they work together. He creates heaven and earth. He creates light and dark. He creates earth and sky, land and sea. All these complementary pairs. And this all climaxes in Genesis 1.27 with the creation of humanity in the image of God, male and female. These two pairs, or this pair of two people, different but the same species, who belong together and go together. Male and female are two halves of a sexual whole. There is a sexual integrity about the male-female relationship that is grounded in the image of God. There's a complementarity to the male-female relationship that is part of what it means to be God's image bearers in the world. 
That's why when you get to Genesis 2 and you see the description of marriage in Genesis 2, 23, 24, it talks about a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. You can't understand marriage in Genesis 2 without understanding the image of God in Genesis 1 because marriage is simply the bringing together of the image of God into one flesh. It's why when you see a wedding ceremony, you have husband and wife making these vows, what you're seeing in that moment, sometimes I say this at weddings, what you're seeing in that moment is one of the most clear expressions, visible expressions of the image of God on planet Earth. It, it doesn't mean that only marriage relationships reflect the image of God. Every one of us bear the image of God. Married, single, gay, straight, Christian, non-Christian, we are all made in the image of God. But marriage, male-female relationship, is one of the most clear, visible expressions of the image of God because it reflects the complementarity of male-female that is part of what it means to be God's image bearers. It's for that reason that Paul says what he says in Romans 1. It's because God's original created intent is that human sexuality would involve relationship between male and female. That's why Paul describes those relationships as being natural. And that's why homosexual relationships are not part of God's original created intent for human sexuality. I want to say that again because it's a summary statement really to this point. Homosexual relationships are not part of God's original created intent for human sexuality. Now, it's all very well to say that, but what about the rest of the story? It's all very well to say this is how God created things, how God set things up in the beginning, but God's created intent for human sexuality was blown out of the water in Genesis 3. When human beings rebelled against God, we had the fall, sin entered the world, and now we are born into a world of brokenness. We are born into a world where the image of God is not what it once was. The image of God within us <clears throat> in humanity is now distorted because of sin. It's now twisted and bent and warped out of shape, and we inherit that. We don't inherit perfect image of God as perfectly whole and healthy human beings. We inherit a broken image of God. We are broken and cracked image bearers, every single one of us. And that means that all of us inherit a sexual brokenness in our lives. If our sexual identity is grounded in the image of God, and if the image of God has been warped and twisted out of shape through sin, every single one of us in our lives, by virtue of being born into this broken world, broken bodies, and a sinful nature, we are born into sinful sexual brokenness. I don't want to say sinful because it may not be something that we choose. But we are born with an inherent sexual brokenness, a sexual dysfunction. And that results in all kinds of proclivities and all kinds of tendencies in our lives. And we've got to own the fact that that's every one of us, regardless of our predisposition, regardless of our practice or orientation, every one of us are sexually dysfunctional and broken people. And that manifests itself in all kinds of ways, maybe through lust, through homosexual lust, heterosexual lust, whatever it is, maybe through desire towards sexual promiscuity, maybe through a loss or lack of sexual desire, maybe through misdirected desires, whatever it may be, because what the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of our humanity has done to us is distort our desires. We inherit distorted sexual desire. We all have misplaced desire. We all have misplaced loves. We all have misplaced affections misplaced tendencies. That's the result of the brokenness of our humanity and being broken image bearers. And one of the many ways 
in which our sexual brokenness manifests itself in our lives and in the world is through same-sex attraction. Not the only way, not the most important way, not in some special category of ways, but one of the many ways in which we inherit brokenness in our life is through same-sex attraction and same-sex relationship. And that is why, I want to make this point so clear, that is why we must never say that same-sex attraction in itself is wrong. We must never say, I think Christians need to be very clear on this, that if, if you start saying to be attracted to someone of the same sex, to have that desire, to have that proclivity, if you start saying that is wrong, you're going way beyond what the Bible says. Way beyond. The Bible takes issue with the practice, takes issue with homosexual relationships, but not with the attraction, not with the desire, not with the proclivity, because theologically we are all born with distorted desires. We all have all kinds of tendencies and proclivities. We are all broken people. That's the reality. And that is not necessarily directly our fault. Some people who are gay choose to be gay, and they make a very conscious choice about the orientation, and then maybe make another choice, and it can go this way and it can go that way. Others have a sense that this is who I am, and, and they're, they're born with a sense of same-sex attraction, and it feels very inherent and intrinsic to who we are. As Christians, we don't need to take issue with that because it squares perfectly with the biblical story that we all inherit brokenness in our life. We are all sexually broken people, and that's not necessarily something that we choose. We may perpetuate that, but it's not necessarily something that we choose. So we need to be very careful on this, not to say that the Bible speaks against same-sex attraction. In itself, that is not wrong. Now, that's not the end of the story either, because it's one thing to say that same-sex attraction is not wrong. It's another thing as to how we respond to it. It's another thing as to what we do with our desires. We may have misplaced desires. We may have distorted sexuality, but it's another thing altogether as to how we respond to that. Because as human beings, part of our humanity is the ability to choose, the ability to regulate our desires, to live well, to live in healthy ways, to bring our desires under control. That's something that we're all called to do. And I know for many people, for gay people, there is the sense of this is who I am. This is how I was made. This is intrinsic to who I am. So I need to have the freedom to live this out, I need to have the freedom to express myself sexually in relationships because this is my orientation. But of course, we wouldn't use that logic in a range of other areas in our lives. We wouldn't say, I have a predisposition towards alcoholism, therefore, I need to have the freedom to live that out according to how I, I feel I'm wired. We wouldn't say, I've got the predisposition towards sexual promiscuity. So I need to not be tied to one relationship, but be able to relate to a number of people. We wouldn't apply that because we believe, all of us, that we have choice, we have freedom, we are autonomous moral agents. We're responsible for regulating our desires and living well. And it's just the same with same-sex attraction. That means for Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction, there is a choice, there is still a choice to be made about how you respond to those desires. By the grace of God, by the strength of the Holy Spirit, there is a choice to be made. And I am speaking here specifically to Christians. I don't want to assume, if you're not a Christian here, I don't want to assume for a minute that you would see anything wrong with homosexual practice, um, that you would see any reason to refrain from that. There is a different worldview at work there. But if you're a Christian, if you have brought your life within the sphere of Christ's lordship, if you have brought your life within the sphere of biblical authority, there is a choice, there is a decision to be made about what we do 
with the desires that we have and the way we surrender those desires to God. Now, I don't think that necessarily means that the goal for a Christian struggling with same-sex attraction is to make them heterosexual. That's kind of been the conventional wisdom for a long time. For some people, that's happened. Some people have struggled with same-sex attraction and they've experienced kind of a conversion of the orientation and they have gone on to be a practicing heterosexual. But I think by setting that in front of people as the goal and expectation for everyone who struggles with same-sex attraction, I think is unrealistic. And it can give people false hope and actually trap them further in shame. It may be by the grace of God where your story goes, but it may be that if you struggle with same-sex attraction, that is what you have for life. May never go away. May always be there. May be, in a sense, who you are. So the goal is not necessarily to be converted to become heterosexual. But I think on the basis of Scripture, we can say that if you are a Christian, and if you experience exclusively same-sex attraction, because for many people it's not exclusive, but if you experience exclusively same-sex attraction, then on the basis of Scripture, you are called to be single. And that's probably the hardest sentence to get out in this whole message. Because I know it's one thing for you to choose a single life for yourself. It's another thing for me to stand here and tell you that could be, biblically, what you're called to. It's very, I know that's very challenging to hear. But I think part of the reason it's challenging to hear and part of the reason we maybe don't want to hear it is because we have such a poor theology of singlehood. We see it as such a dud prize in the lottery. We think it's the goal of every person to get married, but that's not the biblical vision either. The biblical ideal is not everybody gets married. Uh, Jesus wasn't married. Paul probably wasn't married. In fact, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 7 in which he says, I wish everyone was as I am, probably talking about his singlehood, his singleness. So Paul extols the virtue of the single life. It's a good life. It can be a fulfilling, satisfying, abundant life. And if you are experiencing same-sex attraction, and that is defining you, that may be the life that you're called to. And underneath all of this, I think, is a deeper question about what it means to be disciples. The question that we wrestled with last week, of are we truly and honestly going to bring our whole selves to God, including our sexuality, and lay this down before God? Are we going to say, ultimately, I feel entitled to live this way, I feel entitled to, to live out this form of sexuality, or are we going to say, I'm not my own? I was bought with a price. Uh, my body is not my own. My sexual desire is not my own. I don't belong to me anymore. I belong to Jesus. If you're a Christian, are you willing to say that? To lay every part of your life down, even sexual desire, even these predispositions that you may have, to lay all of that down and say, I want, by the grace of God, for Christ to be honored in my life and to believe that God will give you the power to keep that commitment, that by the strength of God and the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the people of God, around you by God's all-sufficient grace. He will give you the ability to live a life that honors him and glorifies him, and he'll be faithful to you in the midst of it. I know it's easy for me to say, but I think that is the calling of Scripture uh, for each one of us, is to bring our lives to Christ and lay them down, including our sexuality. One of the authors that has had a huge effect on me, one of my favorite authors, has gone through this process, a guy called Henry Nowen. He's a Catholic priest and an author on Christian spirituality. He's had an influence on millions of people, including me. And he, in his adult life, he struggled with same-sex attraction, struggled with his sexuality. Now, he was already a Catholic priest. 
or he became a Catholic priest. So he'd taken a vow of celibacy. So he didn't break that vow either in heterosexual or homosexual relationships. But he did go through a process, hinted at in his memoirs and his journals, a process of handing over his sexuality, sexual desire, to Christ. He even asked another Catholic painter to, to, to produce an artwork that symbolized him handing over his sexuality, his sexual identity, to God. So it was a picture of Christ being embraced by a disciple. And for him, that enabled him to come to terms with his sexuality, to wrestle with this, and then ultimately to offer up his sexuality to God, to offer up his sexual desire, offer up every part of himself to God. And that is something we are all called to do, Christian, uh, hopefully non-Christian, if you begin following Jesus, gay, straight, wherever we are on the spectrum, to bring our lives and offer our lives to Christ as an offering, including every single part of ourselves. And if you struggle with same-sex attraction, it is a hard and a challenging process, but one that we're called to do from Scripture, to give our whole selves to Christ and to trust Him, to trust Him with our sexuality, to trust Him with our relationships, to trust Him with our own bodies, to trust that He is good that he knows us and loves us better than we know and love ourselves. And we can live abundantly and fully in the grace of God. <clears throat> now, that is the end, really, of the exposition of Romans 1. But I want to just finish by making one final comment about how we as a church community, how we as Christians, respond to the gay community. Because, again, we need to be guided by the words of Scripture. We need to be guided, I think, by the words of Jesus, who was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God. And then what is the second greatest commandment? And what did he say? Love your neighbor as yourself. Those words should be seared into our minds as we relate to gay family members, gay friends, gay colleagues, gay neighbors, anyone on, the, on wherever they are on the spectrum of sexuality, people struggling, people confused, people who don't know. We need to love the gay community and they need to know that we love them with the love of Jesus. And there shouldn't be any us and them because we're all broken people. We're all messed up people trying to struggle towards life and life and freedom in Jesus Christ. We need to love the gay community with the compassion and the kindness of Jesus because I truly believe that if Jesus was here, he would be moving towards the gay community with massive amounts of love and grace and compassion and unconditional acceptance. Not necessarily affirmation of the practice, but a love for people. He ate and drank with all kinds of people, gluttons, drunkards, prostitutes, tax collectors, all kinds of people who would represent categories of people that others considered socially inferior. And Jesus just walked across all those dividing lines, just betrayed all the social taboos, and he moved towards people with masses of love. And that must be our calling. That must be what we do. We must never have a, have a smug look on our face. When we hear of a gay person getting a hard time, we must never have some smirk on our face. We hear of someone who's gay struggling or wrestling or being mistreated in some way. <coughs> Excuse me. We must never engage in joking, mockery, unkind talking about gay, transgender, lesbian, bisexual, intersexual people. We, we've got to be the first ones to shut those conversations down because we're Christians. That's our calling precisely because of what we've talked about today, that every person is made in the image of God, equally loved, equally valued by God, a precious son, a precious daughter. We've got to speak that message of hope into every life around us, including those whose sexual orientation may be different to ours. We've got to treat people with the love of Christ. We've got to let them see Jesus in us, 
Jesus was full of grace and truth. And we've talked about both of those things today. We've talked about truth. And there's a time to do that. There's a time to look honestly at Scripture, try and understand the truth of what these passages are saying. That's what I've tried imperfectly to do this morning. But I want to wrap that, and we must wrap that, in layers and layers and layers of unconditional grace. Especially for those we know who are gay, lesbian, transgender, and bisexual. We must love the gay community with the love of Christ, allow them to see us as broken people who are stumbling forward. We're on our own journey, and we're inviting all people without distinction to join us. So may we be Christ to one another. May we be Christ to the gay community. May we speak a message of life and hope and freedom in Christ and acceptance to all people, regardless of their sexuality. And may we all bring our lives, all, in, in all their fullness, every dimension of our lives, including our broken and distorted sexuality, may we bring all that to the foot of the cross, surrender it, offer ourselves up, receive the abundant grace of Christ, and seek to walk in a manner that is faithful toward the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you that You've created each of us equally in your image, that whoever we are here today, whatever road we've walked, wherever we are on, on this issue today, that we are made in your image. And God, we want to acknowledge, even as I, as I talk about this now, that we're not, we're not talking about a topic or a subject. We're talking about people, people who you deeply, deeply love, who you really, really care about, people for whom you, Jesus, have died and risen again. And people who you desire us to go and, and be your ambassadors and reflect your grace. So God, we pray that even though we are all broken image bearers, that we would be able to find all of our sufficiency in you, Jesus. All of our life, all of our fulfillment, all of the abundance that you've promised us, that it would be found in you. We need you and we love you, and we just own our brokenness before you so that we can all the more clearly see your grace that has been poured into our lives. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his love for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shore.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shore.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.